Hello and welcome to the Business of Betting podcast. Today I'm joined by Andrew Mack. Andrew, thank you very much for coming on the show. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Betfair Australia. No matter where you are in the world, if you're looking to find your edge in sports betting or racing, you'll need to visit the Betfair Hub. From analysis to betting psychology, it has everything that you need. Simply visit betfair.com.au slash hub. Today, I'm joined by Andrew Mack. Andrew, thank you very much for coming on the show. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here, Jake. So, Andrew, you it sounds like you're many things these days, not only author, and we'll, we'll touch on the uh, the book you wrote about statistical models in Excel, but it sounds like law student, um, you know, involved in the Australian university programs now, which is very interesting for me, given my background. So we'll, we'll try and cover a lot of that as we go through here, but... Just generally, if you are introduced at a party and you have 90 seconds to explain what you do and how you do it or what you've done, what do you normally come up with? Well, if I, um, if I was introducing myself at a party, I would probably try to uh, avoid talking about sports betting and sports gambling <laughs> because everybody and their brother wants wants to know who's going to win tomorrow's game or and, and the it, it immediately goes off the rails into a... Uh, you know, sort of a degenerate sort of a conversation. But um, I would say that the, you know, the 30-second elevator pitch is um, former journeyman electrician, current uh, third-year law school student, also pursuing a Master of Data Science online through James Cook University. And when I'm not doing uh, those things and I'm not in the gym, I build my own sports betting models and use them to bet. So that terminology, building sports betting models, that seems like it can take many shapes and forms. And I guess as a good starting point for your book, you wrote a book about statistical sports models in Excel. Just take us through your progression, you know, from very early on to to where you're at now in terms of what type of sports modeling you did or or can be done, and and we'll follow up from there. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I guess. It would probably uh, be relevant to say that many of the listeners are probably familiar with the the idea that there's more than one way to to bet sports. Uh, modeling is just one sort of branch of of techniques or or strategies to bet sports. So you know you have your line grinders and steam chasing and, and that sort of thing, and those are all um, legitimate in their own right. Um, modeling is just a specific set of techniques that you can use to try and uh, find value in the marketplace. Um, you know, when I when I first started, I really didn't have too much of an idea what I was doing. I had a couple of um, <clears throat> a couple of like online eBooks that I had picked up. Uh, one I talked about in the uh, the Pinnacle podcast that I did, which was you know basically looking for undervalued dogs or fifty fifty coin flips, where you know the team in question had a 500 or better record in the home or away situation that it was in, but it was priced at, you know, 2.0 odds or better. So that the idea was a coin flip where you're, you're being paid more than one to one. Um, that was kind of my first entry into the idea really that, that there was, you know, some kind of a strategy to this, but, um, as, as I sort of went into it very recreationally in the initial stages, I eventually, after losing some money, realized that, 
you have to get serious about the math if you want to compete successfully and you have to learn the skills that are required to do that and that really for me drove the whole process of i want to learn how to build models i want to learn how to create my own lines and price things and find my own value and that that really was what kicked it off for me so from your experience is there a, a pyramid or a hierarchy when it comes to modeling if you're talking about um, you know the approach whether um, whether we mean effectiveness or complexity etc i would say yes um, there's there, there are simple, basic sort of entry-level techniques and platforms and things, and then there are more advanced ones. And um, I think myself, like many other people, you know, you start start at the bottom and you just work your way up. So, you know, you start uh, you start putting together some basic things in Excel. Um, you start getting better and better at Excel, and at a certain point, you know, you will re realize that Excel has some inherent limitations that other platforms like R or Python um, even Stan or Jags really can um, can compensate for and um, and and be more effective than just Excel in its own. So, um, yeah, definitely there is a hierarchy, um, and I think a lot of that a lot of that comes down to the fact that when you're building a model for sports, you need data, and the data has to be um, constantly refreshed, organized in a way that you can make some kind of sense of it. And hopefully automated so that you can speed up the process because, as you know, with markets moving as quickly as they do, um, trying to do things by hand, uh, it's just not it's not long term effective. You can certainly make your own line on a game uh, and bet games sort of one at a time, uh, doing things relatively speaking by hand. But at some point, you realize that in order to maximize your efficiency and your effectiveness, you need to move on to things that are a little bit more powerful. And that, um, in many ways, was the impetus for writing the book. I had moved on from Excel largely to R and to a lesser extent Python for data scraping. And I would say that those are definitely the next the next step in the process for anyone that's looking to take their betting to the next level. Is there residual value for you or just generally? Can you, can you skip the step of Excel, for example, and jump straight to platform? Or is there considerable value in being a, a damn good uh, Excel spreadsheeter, let's say, in your sports betting, and, and then, I guess, moving up a step uh, progressively towards something like R or Python? That's a, an interesting question. I think that the answer to that depends on who you are as an individual and what, what skill set you bring to the table. So if you, if you have some underlying knowledge of statistical um, analysis and or coding to begin with, maybe skipping Excel would be perfectly fine. And there might not be a, a tremendous amount of value for you in going back to the, the basement floor, so to speak. But if you are a, you know, a, a largely a self learner like me, I think that there's a tremendous amount of value in learning Excel. And the reason I say that is because Excel is such a, a hyper visual point and click interface that you can see what's going on in every cell and you can learn from your mistakes very well uh, in that respect. And so as you kind of fumble your way through it in the beginning stages, you you get better and better um, at understanding what's going on. And if you understand what's going on, it's easy to figure out how to code a command um, in R or in Python because you understand what's going on behind the hood. And one of, so one of the things with R and Python is that if you know what you're doing um, in terms of you understand that you need a standard deviation 
uh, element in your model right here, you know, in this particular spot or something. Um, it's much faster, uh, much more efficient, much more powerful. If you don't really understand why you would need standard deviation in this hypothetical scenario, um, you're going to be a little bit lost and it's easier to make mistakes. And so that's for that reason, I think that it's it's for the self-starter or the beginner, it's easier to start in Excel because not only do you you get a little bit of, of knowledge about model building, but you also learn about statistics through, you know, your trial and error process. So that was going to be one of my follow-up questions around statistics. Is there an avalanche of new information, new terminology, and other things to understand in order to implement properly or correctly within what's happening even within just Excel? Uh, yes, I think that, you know, if you're going to have a reasonable expectation of success in in modeling any uh, prop or large market line, you do want to know some basic things about statistics. It's very, very difficult to make the case that you can make a decent model, a decent forecast, and bet successfully using a modeling process with little to no statistical knowledge. I just don't think that that is uh, uh, an accurate depiction of the challenge that is presented to us as sports bettors. And so you will have to eventually, at some point, learn you know, the different terminology and the different principles and the different techniques, why they're important, when, when they should be applied, uh, and alternatives to their application. Because all of that you know, from my electrical background perspective is just adding tools to your toolbox. You know, the, the more tools that you have in your toolbox, the more versatile you can be in coming up with a solution to a real world problem. And I think that analogously, this is very similar. So do you think the very best at using Excel uh, in the business of sports betting is can be as good as someone who's decent at R or, or pretty good at R? Or do you think there's a pretty, I guess, extra bit of acceleration and power that comes with using some of those uh, R and Python types? Uh, that, I think, is going to depend quite a bit on the markets that uh, that are the subject of, of the question. So uh, applied broadly across all of sports betting, I think it would be difficult to say because certain markets, you could, I would argue that you can be just as effective in Excel as you can in R or Python. Um, those are going to be smaller markets uh, with lower caps like props and derivatives. I think that you can uh, do very, very well with Excel in those markets uh, and, and obscure markets as well. As I've mentioned many times, you know, the, the Icelandic Women's Basketball League or something like that. Uh, I think that you can do very, very well in those areas with an Excel-based model that is that is well-built and pays attention to the details. When you get into larger markets, you know, the NBA point spread, um, NFL point spread, you know, really, really big, highly competitive markets with a lot of liquidity. Um, you, I think that that's where you start to see that you're going to need a sophistication level that requires you to take that next step. And that's simply a function of the fact that there are so much information incorporated into those large market lines that it's going to be very difficult to compete successfully. Uh, although not impossible, but just difficult uh, to compete in those markets with Excel. So Bayes' theorem has come up a few times in recent episodes, a couple of actuaries talking about it, and certainly a lot of questions getting thrown around uh, with respect to, to Bayesian inference and, and how it's best used or how it's most useful and the best ways to tackle it. For you, I'm sure you've come across it 
in recent times as well. Why is it valuable to you or how is it valuable to you or how do you consider it most useful in your approach to sports betting? I'm glad you asked that, actually. One of my goals for, for this year is to transition to the maximum extent possible all of my statistical work from frequentism to Bayesianism with in you know with regards to sports betting. Um, Bayesian inference is fantastic for helping us understand um, all of the challenges that we face as sports bettors. And I would say that um, you know there's a lot to it. It's almost hard to pick uh, something, but uh, the essence of, of Bayes is updating prior beliefs in the face of new evidence. And the second sort of major point I would say is that I think that Bayesian inference better understands and um, takes account of the inherent uncertainty that we face when we deal with something like sports betting. It's not as simple as, you know, um, a, a game of blackjack or roulette where there are known probabilities and, and, and it's not, there, there isn't much parameter uncertainty. Bayesian statistics allows you to, instead of taking a single data point, allows you to take ranges, right, uh, distributions, and use those as part of your regression model or, or whatever it is that you're trying to do. And in that sense, um, better incorporates the uncertainty that we face when we, we watch one game out of, you know, many hypothetical possible games play out. And so for that reason, I think that it's it's very, very helpful. The other thing that I would point out is, is a big selling point for me personally for Bayes is the crucial difference between a Bayesian credible interval and a frequentist confidence interval. Um, if you read them quickly or you, you read them being discussed in various papers, sometimes they can sound very, very similar or effectively the same, and they're not. Um, the most important difference being that with a Bayesian credible interval, the true value, which is the value that we would be looking for as sports bettors, um, becomes increasingly more likely to be within the credible interval. And that's not necessarily true with a confidence interval. And so the confidence interval can end up giving you a false sense of confidence uh, and ultimately can end up not really answering the, the question that we're trying to answer when we do sports modeling related tasks. So from my perspective, thinking about Bayesian inference and how it's applied now and what others have certainly told me about it, one of the things, because for me, it's, it's certainly back to what can it solve, uh, you know, in the, for the average sports better, for the average person who might be looking at these different things that you're talking about and how they can implement them the best. Do you have any thoughts on what they can be doing in the short to medium term? And one thing for me, going down this rabbit hole on a lot of the Bayes theorem and, and hearing you talk about it and others talking about it is it can certainly help to counter some of the the rush to answer that we have. And I think, you know, we want to say, we just saw the Patriots game. The Patriots look good. I want to bet on the Patriots or I like the Patriots. And then we often go back and find answers why we why we can back up that belief. It's it's funny, you going through law school, I obviously have a background in, in the law and it's what you're trained to do. They give you a set of facts and what we do is we rush to the end and we grab the answer. You know, if it's a murder trial and we're defending someone, we want to say that they're not guilty. And then we that's work our way through the fact pattern and try and find out, you know, exactly what works best for us. And that's kind of what most gamblers do, I would say. You you have a, 
you have it, whether you like it or not, the, the subconscious uh, belief probably on a horse or a team or a player, and then you find out different trends, and a lot of people will be attracted to those things for those reasons without even really thinking about it. But do you think Bayesian you know, inference and the theorem can help take away some of those things, among other things? I do, yeah. I, I would say that... Um... You know, to, to give a, a law example, Bayesian statistics and, and the various techniques um, help you to kind of fairly assess what you might call the balance of probabilities from yeah. like a, a tort a tort law standpoint or something like that. Um, ultimately, when when we come up with an answer, I think what Bayes what Bayes really drives home is that you don't really want a number. What you really want is a range, because uh, a single number is is too confident. Uh, ultimately, you know, if you say, okay, how many goals are the Washington Capitals going to score tonight? And you could you could run a you know a standard frequentist approach, and you could get three point six eight, a single data point. Whereas the outcome for a Bayesian regression would be a range um, of values that more accurately reflects the fact that we don't know for sure what the actual expectation is. We're, we're fairly confident that it's in this range. There, there's a lot of variance that's going on. And I think that it, that helps to temper your expectations and your confidence when you're dealing with uh, so much parameter uncertainty as we see with sports. Yeah, and for me, it seems somewhat intuitive that a range is most sensible. And maybe that's just because of my training and my legal background, among other things. The The balance of probability example is perfect because there's so many times in in life where someone says, you know, non-legally trained, what's the chance of this? Give me a number. And you're sort of like, well, I, I can't, like I can, but I certainly shouldn't. And I think in sports betting, it's the same thing that the chance of, you know, the, the Los Angeles Lakers scoring zero points is a non-zero number. Uh, the, the, the chance of the Lakers scoring 30 points is also a non-zero number, obviously very low, but there is some chance that it happens and i think that's where most people jump to the well there's no chance there's absolutely no scenario possible where that's going to happen and and obviously it it could happen in in the real world yeah absolutely um plus ev analytics on twitter made a really great point to that end uh, a little while back about about prop betting uh in the sense that in any given prop betting scenario there's a non-zero chance that the player in question is going to get injured in the middle of the game and, and not return to the playing surface. And that was a really killer tip. Um, I was actually almost a little bit, uh, <laughs> a little bit wish that, that he hadn't mentioned it because it's such a good <laughs> tip, but it's, it's a really, really good tip. Um, I, I remember I cashed a number of prop bets on, uh, on Trubisky on the bears be, because he got injured after, you know, starting the, you know, the first or second snap. And then he, you know, tweaked his shoulder or something and went out and all the under, all the under props hit. And, um, it's, it's definitely true. You know, you, you can't say, like you said, there, you can't just say, Oh, there's no chance that X is going to happen. Well, that's not the world that we live in when we deal with the level of uncertainty that we have in sports betting. There is always, almost always a non-zero chance, um, of something, you know, some freak, uh, event occurring, right. A bad bounce that ends up in the back of the net. Someone, uh, Blake Griffin steps on the floor, tweaks his ankle in the first two minutes, but he started the game, and so the prop, uh, you, you know, the prop is live. All of those, uh, all of those type of things. It's, it's very important to remember that, um, you know, we we have a human tendency almost to say 
70% is basically 100 and 30% is basically zero. And that tendency to want to push uh, uncertainty and probability towards the, the zero or the one is, is a bad thing to do, both in life, but specifically in our conversation, sports betting. Do you think it's underutilized in general in betting markets, these type of thoughts and theories and approaches? And, you know, one thing that comes to mind based on your Trubisky example is Lamar Jackson is unbelievable, you know, MVP, Super Bowl favorite, all of that type of stuff. But you're just thinking back to RG3 and some other, you know, running style quarterbacks who have a lot of rushing yards compared to some of the others. He seems like a candidate that might get it, like the example you mentioned. It, it seems like it's possible, and he's going to have a few high numbers. And, you know, in addition to that, we I spoke to Plus EV Analytics about something like points betting, where you can maximize based on the probability or the distribution of probabilities of something happening. And it's one thing that I don't necessarily think is encountered too much on the bookmaker side, let's just put it. Yeah, well, I think um, I think you're absolutely right. I think, you know, to speak about the football example, I mean, we've seen this many times with the the running quarterback. Uh, the, the player in question comes onto the scene, rushes for all of these yards, and all of the sports talking heads and announcers go crazy and say things like, this is a whole new breed of quarterback. And, uh, <laughs> and the truth is we've seen it many times before. They do very, very well initially, and then defenses adjust, and then they end up taking a bad run here or making a bad decision about, uh, you know, which which way to, uh, you know, to try and get around another player. And they, you know, they tear a ligament in their ankle or, you know, an MCL or something like that. And then they're gone. And, and then when they come back, they're never quite as good as they were. So definitely that is certainly one of the risks of that style of quarterback, as you mentioned. And um do I think that that most betters are taking those kind of things into consideration? Uh, no, I don't. I think even people that are doing basic modeling, you know, one of the assumptions of a computer-based model is that a, a human being will always perform more or less to their mean expectation. And we know from, you know, just basic psychology and, you know, our own life experiences in terms of, you know, some days you're on the ball and some days you feel sluggish and you don't really feel like like doing whatever it is you're supposed to do that day. And, and athletes are no different. So those type of things, you know, it's definitely wise to try and incorporate them in some way into a model um, in a way that reflects the fact that we're not 100 percent certain about these things. Well, one other example that jumps to mind, I have no idea if it's applicable or necessarily relevant, but season win in NFL, you always see 10 and a half, you see 11s. Not often you see 11.5 or 12, but it seems like every year there's teams that win 13 games and maybe they're, they're using averages or weighted averages and they're happy to take that risk across a number of different teams and you know they, they might be happy to have you know Cleveland certainly underperform and some of these other teams versus the Saints and the Patriots and others who seem to always overperform or be in the realm of overperformance. Are there examples in betting markets, do you think, that we should be exploring that might be from a Bayesian perspective, you can exploit. Uh, I do. I, d I don't know if I don't know if the example I would pick necessarily would be totals. Although, to speak about totals briefly, one um, example that's been on my mind the last few days is the Detroit Pistons. Uh, I think they were thirty-seven point five wins uh, at the start of the season, and you know they have what twelve wins now or something like that uh, because of all the injuries that they have sustained. Uh, Blake Griffin is pretty much toast. His knees being held together with super glue and duct tape, basically. Um, Reggie Jackson has been sidelined for 
uh, weeks and weeks. Um, basically, that's a team that, that will be lucky to get, uh, you know, 25 to 28 wins at this point. Now, when the total first came out, based on my model projections, I thought, uh, this looks a lot more like a 40 or 41 win team. I think that there might be a little bit of value on uh, the Pistons over 37.5. And in light of, uh, you know, the way that things have gone now, I can't help but wonder if uh, Pinnacle or the other betters betting into that market may have incorporated the chance of injury uh, to Blake Griffin and other players a little bit better than maybe I had. Now, I'm not um, heavily active in uh, in season totals uh, bets generally with basketball, but I do look into them sort of as a starting point for the season. Um, and I thought that that was kind of an interesting example. Um, with uh, getting back to Bayes, uh, which was really the question, uh, I, I think that there are ways to take a look at that and and, and apply it to a number of different markets. Um, a really simple example, there's an article, um, and I wish I could remember the website, um, but uh, it, basically it, it was a very simple model with baseball where it, it took uh, the team's uh, betting, or not betting record, sorry, the team's win record, and then it took the, the starting pitcher's win record, and it applied a basic uh, base theorem uh, calculation to it that basically said, you know, if you expect this team to win X percentage of the time, and then the, that's your, which is your prior, and then you have the starting pitcher, which is, you know, this record, which is the new evidence. How does that update to become a new expected win percentage with this starting pitcher in the home or away situation? And took that and went through like a whole season and found that that's, that simple analysis uh, did something like 55.6% uh, win rate, which isn't, you know, super impressive in its own right. But I think that it is impressive when you consider how simple it was. And, um, uh, if you just Google like, uh, like Bayesian baseball, you know, win record, I'm sure that that article will, will come up. It was quite interesting. Um, uh, but there, there are many, many examples like that where the general approach of updating your prior belief or your, your existing belief of the line or the price or whatever in the face of new evidence, I think that that has a number of very, very useful applications to betting. How much has it been infiltrating in the sports betting markets? You think is this relatively new in the you know previous three, four, five, six years that is becoming more widespread and there's more information out there about what some of the smart people are doing, or do you think it's been going on a lot longer than that and a lot of people have been taking advantage of it? It might just be that we're all catching up slowly. I think it would be the second one. I think it's been going on for some time. Um, you know, even even Nate Silver was talking about this, uh, you know, many, many years ago. Uh, so the idea that it's a secret that we've all just discovered magically now, I, I don't think that that's reasonable. Um, the real thing is that I think that there's a lot of confusion with the general betting public and beginners, uh, sports bettors and modelers about statistics um, that I don't think it's very well understood that there there are, there's more than one statistical approach and the two broad branches or families are the frequentist approach and the Bayesian approach. And most of what we, you know, commonly understand as statistics is a frequentist approach. And so I think that it may be underutilized to some degree because it's a little bit more uh, difficult, I think, at first 
and also because it's not as, as widely understood generally. But I definitely think that it's been used for a very long time and that, uh, you know, myself in, included in this, but, you know, those of us that are starting to use it more and more are very much catching up rather than discovering something. So for the average sports better, even just a decent, solid sports better uh, who are, you know, spent time with Excel, watch betting markets are pretty well-rounded generally, but aren't necessarily on the the high end or the tip of the sword when it comes to this type of thing. You're probably not going to write a book about transitioning from statistical sports modeling in Excel to R and Python. So just generally, what would you say to those types of people? Is it worth putting in the hours to to progress up towards that type of uh, analysis and approach? Or do you think that there's enough meat on the bone, you know, the way sports betting is today that it's not necessary if it's a, if it's not a full-time pursuit? Well, that's a, there's a lot to that. Um, you know, some of that depends on what your goals are. I mean, how, how seriously do you want to take sports betting? If you want to take it really seriously, then I would say that you need to understand that in a competitive market, anything that doesn't grow dies. And that's as true for a Fortune 500 company as it is for a sports better. And so uh, in that respect, if you're not improving your models or finding a way to try and make them better all the time, even if it's just you know a little bit here and there, small incremental improvements, um, you're slowly losing you know your foothold to the market at large. And and if you understand that, then you you appreciate that you need to try and find ways to make it better over the long run in order to stay at the same level that you're at relatively to the rest of the herd or to improve. And if that's sort of where we are here, then I think it's important to definitely do the work, commit yourself to to learning what you need to learn to get there and, and definitely thinking seriously about uh, progressing on to something like R or Python with a MySQL database attached, etc. Um, if you're just doing it recreationally, uh, it's never going to be, you know, your main source of income. You don't want it to be your main source of income. It's it's um, it's more of an intellectual challenge, or it's for for fun. But you just you don't want to lose as much. Maybe um, do you need to use those things? No, probably not. I think there is enough meat on the bone, as it were. Um, with Excel that you can do some very useful things and you can have uh, a bit of success with it that way. So it really depends on your goals. But that being said, if you want to, you know, to really push it to the maximum degree possible, those things are going to be very useful for you. I was having a a discussion recently around a question that was asked to proposed to one of the guests on the show and you might be the perfect guest to to throw it at it's around cycles in betting markets and and sports betting and one of the examples that was thrown out there was baseball and and you see even publicly a lot of people saying that you know baseball's too hard to beat i'm not able to do it or post the all-star break this or i'm going to pull back here or there do you think that when that happens that the market generally can not necessarily slow down. I'm not sure what the right word is, but there can be cycles in betting markets where, you know, for years people have been attacking baseball and using analytics and, you know, using the money ball stuff and getting involved in that. And then there might be a time where for three, four, five years, experts or data-driven betting analysts and experts are moving to other sports or looking at other areas, whether it's collegiate sports or international sports and, gaps and holes might open up in the market or do you think markets are just too good and it's uh, it's a bit of a silly point to raise 
I don't think it's it's silly. It's actually a very interesting question, and I'm not I'm not sure that I have the answer. But if I, if I was going to work through the problem with you here, I would say you know the first thing that comes to mind is you know um, comparably to say you know like a financial market, what happens when skilled participants leave a market? Does the market become more you know more uh, wide open, more egalitarian, or do the remaining skilled participants just take up uh, a proportionately larger share of the winnings. Um, that's the first thing that sort of comes to mind to me is I would think, well, okay, say that we have a bunch of hedge fund managers that are having difficulty com competing with, uh, you know, with automated bot trading. And so they leave the market. Does the market then become more open for, you know, individual traders to make more money or do the, you know, does the automated bot trading platform competition take more of the the profits from the market i think that it might be the latter and so I, I think if i was going to uh you know tender a guess on this i would say that if if the if skilled betters get frustrated with baseball and leave uh the skilled betters that remain uh, i think theoretically would do better um and I, I don't know if if it opens up any gaps or potential um it might in the sense that maybe there isn't as much liquidity in the market. And so um, maybe the books get lazy or something like that, but we're starting to speculate fairly, fairly significantly there. Um, hard to say. It is hard to say. I, I don't, I don't know if, if you can say that, uh, that betting is really cyclical. I think that it's a slow, gradual progression of increasing efficiency, both on the part of the bookmaker and the market. And, generally inefficiencies are compensated for by the, those skilled participants in the market. And so having less of those skilled participants, I don't know if it, if it creates like an opportunity cycle or if just the remaining skilled participants take a proportionately larger share. Maybe it'll spark some discussions or people have had similar thoughts, I'm sure, and have spent some time thinking about it. So we'll, we'll see where that one lands. I wanted to ask about more generally just on the markets. And obviously you have a, a specific skill set, which you've obviously written a book about and spend a fair bit of time curating. What about the betting markets? What about understanding, you know, the, the generation of the prices, watching market moves and other things that probably require a different skill set? Do you spend much time focusing on that? Or can you afford not to spend time looking at those types of things? Uh, I do spend a little bit of time doing it. I would say, um, you know, with full disclosure that it's not my strongest skill and it's, it's, you know, like modeling and, uh, and creating my own prices is definitely, you know, where I spend the bulk of my time. Um, that's not to say that I don't watch, uh, price movements and things like that. I do. Um, I do it with the intent of trying to understand, uh, what's going on in the market, what might be driving, um, market pressures but uh, certainly not my strong point. Um, something I'm trying to get better at all the time. Uh, just, just not the, uh, not the main tool in my toolbox, I guess you would say. Um, I don't think that any better should, uh, should seriously ignore those things because you can learn an awful lot about whatever market you're trying to bet in by watching the movements. Um, and, and there are a number of things that you can do with the market prices, like creating derivative models, understanding how derivatives are related to main markets um, and even finding certain market inefficiencies. I mean, in my book, the college basketball uh, live betting total uh, model, I guess it's not really a model. It's more of a technique 
But I discovered that by watching line movements for two or three weekends in college basketball, uh, pretty much nonstop every Saturday, like 10 hours of just watching the lines move, which I'm sure sounds painfully boring to some listeners. But but I, I was sitting there watching the lines move on these live basketball totals. And I just noticed something really funny, which was that there seemed to be uh, an inefficiency uh, where there was some value on the under uh, late in the game in a college basketball uh, scenario where the point differential between the teams was more than 10 points and uh, there was only a few minutes left. It, It seemed like they were offering a line that was a little bit too high, given the fact that the losing team would pull their starters and would stop really trying to win the game. And um, so I, I sort of got that idea from watching the line movement and then, and then sort of started making notes and tracking it. And it seemed to be holding fairly consistently. And that really is what brought on that, that idea, which turned out to be quite profitable right up until the moment that I've got put on a time delay. So, <laughs> uh, so I, I guess you know, the moral of that story is that you can learn an awful lot from watching the lines move. Um, and, and so no, no better should neglect that, certainly. What other ways do you generate your ideas, especially when they're not sports that you like or you don't really want to watch them or you don't have, uh, you know, if it's NFL, for example, you might have ideas that, you know, in certain personnel groupings, you think this because you're, a, you're an expert in NFL, but that's not for everyone. So what, you know, you just mentioned one way that, might be non-standard that comes up with you know hypotheses or different ideas and you can look into it are there other ways that stand out for you that that work in terms of idea generation that you can go back and have a look at in more detail and test yeah i mean um there are a number of different ways some very very sort of like standard um standard standard methods and other ways that are very like non-linear uh sort of creative ideas like my general approach is that i don't i don't discount any idea no matter how ridiculous it sounds uh, on its surface until I've, I've taken a look at it and tested it. And I have some reasonable evidence to discard it or to continue looking at it. And so as a result of that, you know, I come up with a lot of things that don't work, which is fine. Uh, but I learn things from it. And I think that that openness to, you know, the possibility of being able to find something allows me to see maybe some things that other people might miss. Um, when it comes to sort of standard ideas, in a sport that I might not know anything about, the first place that I would look would be derivative models. I would look at the main lines, and then I would look at all of the derivatives, like the half or the quarter or the player props or the team totals, and I would try to establish a relationship between those and then see how efficient the movement is uh, between you know, the, the derivative in question and the main market. You can find a lot of, uh, of ideas to work on just by looking at that derivative relationship in almost any market. Um, and then, like I said, that the sort of nonlinear creative ones, I, you know, when I get an idea, I write it down on a notepad and I just go through them sort of one by one. And um, you come up with hundreds of things that don't work. And every now and then you come up with something that works really well. And um, that's really the process. Sometimes if you... Um, you know, if you're, you're struggling for an idea, reading, reading a book or two uh, or reading a research paper on how somebody else with considerable knowledge in this field has tried to solve a problem can give you some ideas as well. You might, you might go be reading a research paper on the NHL 
for example, and you find that they, they applied a certain process to the data, which changed the result of their experiment. And even if you're not necessarily interested in the NHL, that process that they applied to the data, you might be able to take that, uh, pull it out and use it in your own experiment. And that, uh, that alone could be very useful. And so the, the idea of cross-pollination of ideas in that sense, I think, is very, very useful. So what about staking? We haven't really talked about it. And just, just briefly or generally, do you spend much of your time thinking about the best way that you should implement implement different staking approaches? And I think one thing that, that comes to mind, especially on the, the Bayesian stuff, is if there is a, a distribution of probabilities, will that alter the different types of staking methods? If you think the the chance of a certain total hitting is, is a far wider distribution because there's certain things that may or may not happen? Yeah, that, that definitely goes into the approach. That's something that I have looked at this last year uh, more than I did before. I started out uh, simple flat staking, um, which I think many people do. Uh, nothing wrong with that per se, but if you're fairly confident in your model, then I think that you are leaving money on the table with flat staking. And so this year I actually, uh, like, like in 2019, I moved from flat staking to uh, quarter Kelly for a number of bets, including my prop betting. Uh, and so far, it's been working out very, very well. Um, and other than that, I haven't taken too much too much time to look into it. I do do some calculations for uh, multiple simultaneous bets in terms of um, calculating the, the, the appropriate uh, Kelly stake when you have more than one bet on the table using the Kelly criterion, because uh, some listeners will probably appreciate you know, the Kelly criterion for one bet is not exactly the same as if you have four or five bets that are occurring simultaneously. You have to adjust for that. And so that is probably the, you know, more or less the extent of, um, of what I do with regards to staking. Um, certainly taking into account the, the idea that you're more or less certain uh, of the outcome because the range is is wider or narrower the distribution is wider or narrower uh, i think that that definitely um, needs to play a part in staking and uh, there's many people that know a lot more about that than i do you know plus ev analytics immediately comes to mind but um but yeah that's about the extent of my um my work with staking so thinking ahead 10 or 15 years from now, if we look back and, and listen to this episode or thought about the environment as it is today in you know, early 2020, are there things that stand out that you think will be, that we'll look back on and say, well, of course, that was very valuable or of course, that was you know, unique or non-standard that was you know, really, really helpful in this day and age and you don't have to give away any trade secrets or anything like that, but are there things that are happening now or that you see now or that you're doing now that you think will be immensely useful moving forward? I would say that, you know, my, my process, the, the basic structure of my process, I think will be, you know, very, very standard for people that are, um, that are able to achieve any longevity in the betting space. But I would probably also qualify that by saying, I don't think that the structure of, of what I'm doing is particularly unique. It's more, you know, what it is that I'm actually doing with it. That's unique. And so I would say, like right now, where I'm at is that I scrape the data that I need using Python into a MySQL database, and then I run models using R from that database. And 
that process has, has certainly uh, freed up a lot of time for me. It's very, very efficient and um, really helpful in terms of allowing me to spend the bulk of my time not gathering and cleaning and uh, you know messing around with the data, but but really focusing on modeling and uncovering relationships in the data. And so I think that that having a, a hyper organized structure like that um, is going to be extremely crucial for you know, the next 10 years in betting, just because the speed at which uh, markets move and change, I think that you need something that is able to keep up with those markets. And, um, and while you can do a tremendous amount of things with Excel, uh, you know, punching in the data by hand, copying and pasting the data by hand, all of that stuff is just, it puts you pretty far behind the general pack, I think. And I think, um, that will be even more true 10 years from now. So just tell me about sports betting in 2020. Uh, there's plenty of bad bad news on Twitter about it. There's plenty of people who have problems with any different aspect of sports betting. But in general, to me anyway, it seems like we're in a pretty decent spot with everything that's going on. Um, you know, Sports betting doesn't suck, basically, is, is what you might see if you're on Twitter for 20 minutes. But I think in general, it's... There are plenty of positives. Do you do you feel the same? Do you think there's major problems or holes in in the current sports betting landscape? Not in any particular region or territory necessarily, just across the board. Well, that's a that's an interesting question. It's quite broad, and and so there are, you know, like all law students, the answer is it depends, right? That, <laughs> but that, I would say. I would say that, you know, a lot of the stuff that I'm reading and seeing on Twitter about sports betting sucking is is related to the legislative policies of various states in the United States with regards to, you know, their pre-tax withholding or, or you know, uh, what they will allow, what they won't allow and and the various uh, nonsensical or or ill-conceived uh, rationales for some of the, the legislative policy. Um that that's not really great for for U.S. based sports bettors, and I think that you know the people that are betting in the in the states have have a you know good reason to be concerned about you know some of the, the strange legislation that's coming out as states scramble to legis uh, to legalize sports betting. But um, generally speaking, I don't think that sports betting sucks at all. I, I think that the future is still is still there, um, like all things. Uh, you know, there, there are challenges and we have some unique challenges as sports bettors. Um, you know, one of them obviously is being able to find value by either creating or discerning uh, a line better than the market at large. That's just one of our challenges. Uh, the other challenge is, are you able to get paid, right? Are you, or do you have a reasonable expectation of being paid if, if, and when you, you do win? Um, Many of those challenges have been around for a long time, though, um, and I personally, I don't see a huge uh, reason to be pessimistic. That being said, a lot of my betting is done with Pinnacle, and so I've had a really good experience with Pinnacle in terms of I'd, I'd, I'd have uh, full confidence that I'm going to be paid uh, when I win, and, um, you know, I haven't, uh, I've seen some markets move on me uh, immediately after betting, so seems to be a good sign, but uh, I haven't been hindered in, in a way that seems to put uh, my ability to keep doing this in, in any kind of jeopardy. Um, 
Some of the pessimism, I think, comes from the fact that sports betting can be frustrating if you're not totally aware of what you're doing. And that uh, combined with some of the legislative challenges, I think, uh, is creating most of the noise. But that's just uh, sort of what I've seen. And I only see little bits and pieces when I, I pop in to see what's going on on Twitter. So one final bit more of a strange question for you. What would it take for you to jump across the other side of the counter and, and join the bookmakers in their crusade to, to beat all the betters out of all their money, of course? Oh, I wouldn't do it. I, uh, I have no interest in that whatsoever. Um, and I, You know, having just been asked that question, just thinking, you know, I know for sure that I would never do that. Um, thinking about why I would do that, the first thing that comes to mind is that, um, you know, I like winning money with sports betting and I really like building things uh, and, and building models and trying things. But my favorite part about this whole thing is the intellectual challenge. This is like a uh, like a Rubik's Cube or uh, or a game of poker or something. There is there is an element of skill. Uh, it can be very frustrating, but it's very rewarding to solve a problem. And uh, doubly so when it you know is financially rewarding as well and um and that intellectual rewar reward is uh is something that is something that keeps me very enthusiastic about sports betting generally and i um i wouldn't do anything that would you know that would give that away because that uh that to me is you know is, is equally as valuable as the money uh which i guess may be a strange thing to hear from someone that's sports betting trying to make money about it but um but that uh, I can't imagine. I can't imagine being the business of trying to put people like me out of business. That I don't think that would be very fun. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think many would agree with you. And that intrinsic, I guess, motivation that a lot of people do have is what you know. You hear a lot of people have been in the business for decades, and I think that's part of the reason why. And it's that cat and mouse, the chess game. And you know, there's not only one chess game going on. There's there's multiple. It's it's 4D chess or whatever they they like to call it. So before I let you go, I just want you to uh, to mention your Twitter account and also I think the book's available on Amazon is probably the easiest place to get it. I would imagine. Yeah, um, Amazon. Pretty much every different permutation of that site worldwide uh, as statistical sports models in Excel. And listeners can follow me and see what I'm doing at Gingefacekilla on Twitter, which is. Uh, which is my Wu-Tang-inspired Twitter handle. <laughs> I didn't want to have a crack at the name for stuffing it up and God knows saying whatever I was going to say, but um, <laughs> I'll put a link to the to the book in the in the show notes so people can go take a look. And uh, Andrew, I want to thank you for your time. It's, it's much appreciated. It's a very interesting topic to talk about, and I hope we uh, provided some insight for those listening. Yeah, it's been a pleasure, Jake. Thank you very much for having me. 